Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I am Brad Berman of the club's Personal Growth Forum and your host and moderator for this event. It is my pleasure to extend a special welcome to any new club members who are watching. We invite everyone to visit us on the web at www.commonwealthclub.org. Additionally, please consider a donation to the club during these uncertain times. With your financial support and participatory support, we can continue to keep people informed with timely civic information. Today, we will be discussing about feeling down or depressed in the time of COVID-19. Let's do something about this. It's a stressful time. It's difficult even for those with naturally sunny personality to maintain the mood that they want. We have therefore asked uh, Dr. Stephen Hinshaw, PhD, a professor of psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and Vice Chair for Child and Adolescent Psychology at the University of California, San Francisco. Dr. Hinshaw has authored well over 360 articles, chapters, written 12 books. His work and comments have been featured on media for many years. Dr. Hinshaw is a fabulous teacher, colleague, and I'm privileged to say, personal friend of mine. Stephen, welcome and thank you to this day's uh, forum. Thanks so much for having me on, Brad. And let's make it Steve. It was Stephen when I was in trouble as a kid. So Stephen has a bad association. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, would you like to begin with just a couple of introductory remarks, if you would, about the theme for today about depression in the era of COVID-19 and, of course, all the stressors we are beset with? Sure. I'm going to propose boldly a change in our language. Depression means to most people feeling down, kind of out of sorts. If you read this past Sunday's New York Times, Dr. Richard Friedman of Weill Cornell talked about a kind of pandemic of boredom in the COVID-19 era, making the key point that boredom is not depression. Boredom is something that we don't like, we have to tolerate, etc. So small d depression are our everyday feelings of demoralization and sadness and disgruntlement that are pretty universal these days. But what if that sad mood and really distorted cognitions about yourself and now your body, your appetite and your sleep are really off and your self-worth becomes more chronically low. Your motivation for things that usually give you pleasure seems to have gone with the wind. You're even wondering if life is worth living any longer. Now we go from everyday small d depression to capital D major depression, or as it's called major depressive disorder uh, in the DSM-5. It really should have a different name because making these synonymous can make people say, well, I'm feeling kind of lousy too. What do you mean you're depressed? Or can't you snap out of it? Or, you know, I tried to support you for a while, but you just don't seem to be getting with the program. As we'll discuss, 
there's a difference between everyday boredom, sadness, disgruntlement, and major depression. It's a very important difference, although it does exist on a spectrum. And I think one of the goals for today is to help distinguish how are you doing, how are you feeling, when might you know that you've crossed over into that, that kind of capital D depression when real help is needed. So that's what I want to say to just start off, Brad. Great. Thank you so much, Steve. Um, are already intriguing uh, for us to discuss. So if we could put up the slide, please, for all of our listening audience. We have put together a very simple PowerPoint slide that lists several resources, both locally and nationally. It is by no means comprehensive, and yet through these websites and telephone call, uh, lines, people can try and reach out for resources, services, guidance, even virtual counseling and help. These are call-in lines. They are staffed by trained professionals. And there is a wealth of information available to everyone uh, along the themes of depression, mental health, and coping during the era of COVID-19. So thank you very much for that, Steve. We will be able to take this slide off in just a moment, and then we will present it at the end of the conversation. So as sort of a dialogue question and answer process, Steve, and it's a little perplexing already because you threw up the notion of boredom. So let me modify the question. How would someone be able to distinguish the difference within themselves or from a loved one of the things of feeling down, blue, moody, or bored as compared to really feeling depressed? Right. And this is the, the very tough question because we all have different thresholds within ourselves. Some of us have a personality that's a little more gray rather than uh, light. And what we really try to look for is what's a difference from your baseline that isn't just a day or two, but a week or two of a persistent feeling of negativity of really being bluer than blue. And if things get really severe, the sadness kind of leaves and it's almost like a blankness. One of the paradoxes of major depression is that the symptom of a depressed mood might tend to vanish and one feels kind of emotionless. Sleep and appetite are crucial. Depression, when we go from small d to capital D, uh, wreaks havoc on our circadian rhythms and uh, our appetite. So people might either lose or gain weight or oversleep or have trouble sleeping much at all. Motivation, as I mentioned at the outset, the things that usually kind of get you going. And of course, it's hard to distinguish these days because we don't have the routines that usually get us going. But if you find for a period of days and now stretching into weeks that it's really hard to get out of bed. And despite all of your efforts to set timers and reminders, you're just not concentrating well. Then we'd start to think if we put those symptoms together, that maybe it's not just a feeling of blueness and boredom and disgruntlement, but you might be on a spectrum leading toward major depression. And let me point out that we as a species, we humans could have never survived back in the day unless we were very social. We're too weak where our predators would have taken us over. And so we're uniquely attuned to loss, either loss of someone close to us or a symbolic loss of the things we usually 
can do and now can't do. And we respond to loss with a lot of the symptoms of major depression. We call it grieving or bereavement. So it's normal to feel depressed, almost capital D depressed, when you're grieving. But what do we have right now? We have a situation in which most of our social contacts are on a Zoom screen or uh, maybe seeing a neighbor uh, through a mask walking on the street. Work routines, family routines are disrupted. Many of us are kind of grieving in a way for the social contacts we usually have. And we're also wired as a species to take our achievements seriously. I mean, without working hard as a species, we'd have never survived. So we're dealing with personal loss. We're dealing with kind of achievement loss. That's going to kind of up the ante for everyone to feel the symptoms of depression more than they typically do. But if you've had, through your DNA, some genetic vulnerability, it's not certainly one or two or five genes, it's many, or if you've had trauma in your past, or your loss experiences are more than your kind of usual dose of them, these are the things, the vulnerabilities that may tip people from the everyday boredom blueness we have into major depression. And as we'll talk about, once we get to that point, treatment's really crucial. And of course, we can't get treatment unless we can talk about it and ask about it, which raises shame and stigma and all the things we'll talk about. So, but chronicity, difference from your baseline, severity of symptoms, and basically a good clinician will ask somewhat about the symptoms, but also about how you're functioning in day-to-day -day life. And if that functioning really isn't going well, that's one of the signs of a more major depression. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, incredibly clear. Well, you've already uh, addressed the second question, so we're moving along well in terms of whether it really matters in terms of distinguishing feeling down right. or blue as opposed to depressed. I want to go back to something you said. Several uh, months ago, right after COVID first hit, we had a marvelous conversation with Michael Tompkins, a colleague of ours, about anxiety. And one of the things that Michael had stressed was about sleep and appetite. And some of the comments that we had received from our listeners were just immensely supportive, and some of them were a little bit skeptical. And so I just want to take a moment to ask you the science, or let's say, the clinical importance of sleep and healthy nutrition so that people don't just sort of slough that off. So I'll add a third, which is exercise, right. right? Sleep is still in many ways, the great unknown in science. We spend, or we should spend a third of our lives asleep and scientists are just really barely beginning, although the productivity is surging to understand what our bodies and minds do during that third of our lives when we're not really aware of what's going on, except maybe for our dreams. But it's very clear that sleep restores memory. Sleep restores positive as opposed to negative emotion. Sleep, lots of, your brain, well, it's not very active during sleep. It's incredibly active during sleep. And we go through stages of sleep, deep sleep, REM sleep, etc. And what we are beginning to know about sleep suggests that if we don't sleep well, we're putting ourselves at risk for mental and emotional as well as physical disorders. Good nutrition is a foundation. Uh, we have a, an epidemic of obesity in our country, stark contrast to subsistence countries where there's not enough calories. And just to mention quickly, exercise 
You can read the Science Times every Tuesday in the New York Times, Scientific American, the scientific journals. Every study done with basically ever, every species ever investigated suggests very strongly that regular exercise, especially aerobic, but it doesn't always have to be high intensity, does wonderful things for our brains and our bodies. And a mood elevator and regulator is regular exercise. So we'll talk about psychotherapy and medication and meditation and all kinds of other treatments uh, as we get into further questions. But don't kid yourselves. Sleep, diet, exercise are part of a healthy lifestyle for everyone. And I'm not saying that exercise or diet or sleep alone will cure you out of a major depression, but it can sure help regulate and it can sure help prevent another episode of major depression from coming on. Thank you for really summarizing that. Um, you know, it's interesting. One of the comments from our listeners, and we'll come to parts of it later, is her observations that because of the air quality with the devastating fires, both north and south of us, that being indoors has just compounded the difficulties. And maybe a little bit later, we can talk about some activities that people can do. Absolutely. Yeah. There was also another really affirmative comment that we had just received, which was, thank you for this program, as isolation gives no sense of others feeling down, uh, as some people in my household, and being able to have these sorts of shared dialogues with the listeners is really important, which leads to the question, what would you like to share about the associations of the moodiness and boredom that you describe with the sense of isolation and loneliness that many people, not all, but many people have been experiencing. So our psychologist colleague, Roy Baumeister, down at Florida State, published an article in a major psychological journal about 25 years ago, basically saying that isolation is the bane of human existence. We're, we're wired to be connected, as I mentioned from my tiny tour of evolutionary history a few moments ago. And that feeling rejected, isolated, out of social contact is not the usual state that human beings are used to. One can argue if we get into very different topics that solitary confinement in prisons may be the worst form of torture you can impose upon someone. So. It's not just boredom and lack of routine, and it's not just can I get out of the house and exercise and lack of privacy, but the isolation from the human glue and contact that keeps us going as a species. I think this is a central part of that, along with the uncertainty about when's the next wave and when's the vaccine coming and how long are we in this. Isolation and uncertainty are um, catalysts in a chemical reaction for both small d and major d depression and anxiety. It's very early in this, but do you have any sense about the worthiness of the sort of, you know, what we jokingly call the Zoom cocktail hour as powerful in terms of being the best case fit right now for maintaining that social connection as an example? Well, I'll, I'll start with an example close to home at UC Berkeley, back in the middle of March, I suddenly went one 
Friday till the following Monday to sheltering in place. So my 240 students in developmental psychopathology went to online learning for the second half of the semester. Would the lectures record? Could we get breakout rooms for the sections of 25 each? How were we going to do midterms? How were we going to proctor them? How would we convey the deep meaning of development and typical and atypical development and stigma reduction and treatments? And so a lot of people decry Zoom and its compatriots as little boxes around a ring on your screen and it it's not the same, and of course it's not the same. But it's amazing how effective teaching can be when you have to adapt to that kind of modality. Attendance at our sections, pretty good, but spotty in person, was 100% plus for every week thereafter. Lectures, half live, but people repeatedly watching uh, and on repeat performance. Um, it's amazing what can happen in department meetings in psychology at Berkeley and psychiatry and behavioral sciences at UCSF, when we're lucky to get 50 people in a room at UCSF, and now we have 200 at every faculty meeting. Teletherapy. It's hard to see a therapist in his or her office these days, especially at a major medical center. So UCSF in psychiatry and behavioral sciences has gone to basically teletherapy as the, the, the go-to and we're setting new records for patient contacts each week and each month. Now, it's not the panacea. If you don't have good means and don't have a good broadband connection, you can't get good teletherapy. What about privacy? Uh, what about childcare with young kids when they're online for schooling? When we adapt to the technology that's in front of us, there are problems with Zoom bombing. There's problems with not feeling in the same room, whether it's in a classroom or a cocktail hour. But you can make powerful connections online. And I've been, I doubted it on March 16th, but through the course of the semester and then the teaching I'm doing at UCSF this summer and the lab meetings I have and the talks I give, it isn't the same, it's the best we've got for now and it might help shepherd us through with the contact that it engenders to a gradual reopening of the kind of in-person contact we all crave. So it may be just enough or good enough is, uh, yep. um, so as a pediatrician and a developmental pediatrician, this question is near and dear to my heart. Um, can you hazard a comment about the, notion that people wearing a mask may inhibit or impair that social connectivity? Well, so let's, uh, I'll be very concrete for a clinical example. Some of my colleagues at UC San Francisco uh, are experts in the diagnosis and treatment of kids, adolescents, and adults with autism spectrum disorder. How do you diagnose? The earlier you can diagnose, the better. Infancy and toddlerhood, you can get really good intervention services for that accurate diagnosis. But in order to make that diagnosis, you're not just doing a questionnaire with a family. You're observing the parent and child interact and the child has to see the parent's face and the parent has to see the child's face. And A, young kids aren't going to wear masks, whether they're at risk for autism spectrum disorder or not. And B, if a mask is on, you're missing the crucial 
uh, facial muscles to, to, to read someone else's emotions. So intriguingly, the assessments in the Autism and Neurodevelopment Center in UCSF are proceeding quite well via Zoom these days because the parent and young child at home, as long as the connection is maintained, don't have masks on, and you can do a very precise diagnostic interview. Now, you can't do that same assessment for a teenager suspected of ADHD when you've got to do a lot of perceptual motor questions and time tasks, and it's much better to have the person right there. So there, the internet and Zoom giveth and taketh away, right? It's, it's not a panacea. We do the best we can. I don't think too many of us love walking the streets and not being able to sure, be sure whether that person was sneering at us or smiling at us inside that mask. But it's our civic duty and it's our epidemiologic duty to keep ourselves and others protected. This too shall pass. We will all look back upon this era and say we lived through it. Of course, too many people aren't living through it. And this is one of the huge pieces of uncertainty and crisis we're all encountering. But those of us who do will look back and say, how did we adapt? And just maybe we'll come out of this with a deeper appreciation for people's moods and anxiety and struggles. And we might have more empathy and we can reduce stigma as having lived through this experience. That's one of my silver lining hopes for this whole era. Great. I really thank you for that. Uh, I pardon because I've got a text related to this. So let's get more to the questions related to depression. Um, and I want to ask one thing in particular, and then we'll move forward, is to what degree does um, in, in interest, involvement, participation, not separating from news, from information and my own bias of general obfuscation that is out there. To what degree could that also contribute to shifts in mood? Well, I'll, I'll have my, my own anecdotes. I like to be informed, but boy, can I quickly get over-informed. This article just contradicted that article and that post said this about the vaccine timing, but that said this and what about airborne and what about aerosol? And it can drive you mad to use a stigmatizing word, right? I think we're, it behooves us all to keep informed. But for me, I've got to shut off the dial at some point and try to find through, I love to play full court basketball. I can't do it these days. What are the other forms of exercise? What are the other forms of kind of rejuvenating myself? And there's evidence that, well, think about global warming, which of course has come into the news as part of the pandemic too. The whole point about global warming and what we can do to fight it is, what's it gonna be like in 2050 or 2070 or 2090? The uncertainty and have we gone up 0.2 degrees Celsius this year versus last year? And are the fires related? And it's easy to get overwhelmed in a swirl of negativity. And it's easy to get overwhelmed with the anti-science bias that a lot of people have in our culture and around the world these days. So I'm certainly not saying, let's all keep our heads in the sand, but like with uh, any treatment you get, news, titrate your dosage, know when your limit is and when enough is too much. 
thank you for that. I appreciate it. We may come back to that again if we have time. Um, and just as a reminder to our listening audit audience, while both Steve and I are experts in child development, this particular presentation is really focused on adults because we did not want to in any way dilute any opportunities for that. And hopefully at another time, we'll be able to focus on children and adolescents, which is, of course, a very important population. So I'd like to read a question for you. As the COVID-19 isolation drags on, I'm feeling more and more sad and tired all the time. It seems that this will never end. I'm afraid that I'll lose my job if I don't fix my attitude, but I'm feeling resentful about the whole situation. I either want to hide or blow up and I can't control it. So the question then is what might someone do who continues to feel this way? What are some steps to take? Well, the first step is writing that text or email. If you keep it buried inside, I can't disclose feeling potentially out of control emotionally or resentful, and I gotta keep the lid on or my boss is gonna know. What happens if you run your car too long in the hot desert? It, the engine blows. You don't want your mental engine to blow. So being able to divulge and disclose is a good first step. But one text isn't enough. Is there support in your family? Are there friends you can chat with, maybe not over the backyard fence, but in other ways? What about peer support? What about counseling? It helps to be able to get perspective. There's many different forms of psychotherapy. Some go more into past history. Some are more current coping and problem solving. I'm not gonna get into the 500 different schools of psychotherapy right now, but consider with the kind of level of frustration that I, I sense from uh, this, uh, I think it's a texter's note, don't let the engine blow. Figure out coping strategies for weighing the alternatives. Yeah, but if I can keep it somewhat in check with my boss, yet find other outlets to vent, then maybe I keep my job. Or Maybe it's questioning what my values are. Is this the right job? What good counseling and therapy does is not shrink your head, but give you the power and strength to figure out options for yourself. Great. Thank you. And if there are more specific questions about that from our listening audience, please email those or, or uh, write them and I'll be able to pick them up. So as a corollary to that, and I think you know where I'm going to be leading. My partner thinks that I'm overreacting to the COVID-19 crisis and that I should just cheer up. I don't want to sneak around to see a therapist and we share finances. So if I see someone, he'll notice it. I feel stuck. What do you recommend? And before you answer that, this is the lead in. As you know, I have read your poignant and personally illustrative book, Another Kind of Madness, A Journey Through the Stigma and Hope of Mental Illness. And for our listeners today, this is a narrative that Steve has shared with us of his growing up in a family with an incredible father who also had a serious mental illness, which leads then to the question, as you'd say, reach out, send a text, whatever. What about that association or relationship between stigma and mental illness? Boy, there's a lot involved in the listener's question and uh, the book I've written and the whole topic of stigma. So let's just define some terms for a moment. Stigma is an ancient term from Greece, and it's got also Latin origins as well. It literally 
signifies the sharp branding irons and knives used back then to cut or burn something into the skin of a traitor, former slave, somebody in the out group in ancient Greece, Greece or ancient Rome. So the stigma was the, mar the visible mark society put on you so that everybody know you were different and stay away. It's a pretty ugly term. Just say it a few times. It kind of sticks in your mouth. Most stigma today isn't a brand, a literal brand. It's psychological. We know you're in group X, religious group, racial group, adoptee, mental illness, homeless. But the mark is still there. Now, 35 years ago in the 80s, some nations literally branded HIV-positive individuals so that everyone would know to stay away. What did Hitler and his cronies do to people in concentration camps in the 30s and 40s? Branded, burned a, a, a number under the left wrist. So there is still some physical stigma, but most of it's inferred today. Stigma is very strong against three particular entities in today's society. We know from recent events, racial prejudice and bias and stigma has not gone away and we're confronting it. But if you look at the research data, the three most stigmatized groups you can be in or attributes you can have are, do you have a mental illness? Are you crazy? Do you abuse drugs? Are you a substance abuser? And or are you homeless? Those are the bottom three. In 2020, we've made tremendous progress. Go to the Pew Charitable Trust website. You can look up their data in these appendices. From 2001 to 2017, random samples of the U.S. population every year went from 37% acceptance of gay marriage to 63% in about a 15-year period. It's amazing secular change. Attitudes toward mental illness fundamentally haven't changed since 1955. And in fact, more people today than in the 50s, if they hear the term mental illness, think, well, the person's dangerous and violent. So we've actually gone backwards in some ways. Young people are helping. Social media, the good side of social media is helping. People are disclosing more and more. I think we're on the cusp of a sea change. But right now, the stigma and shame associated with mental illness that I grew up with for the listener that you just quoted from, sneaking around to see a therapist. Well, it must be a sign of weakness to go see a shrink. Must be something wrong with you. Our cars need tune-ups. We see a doctor every year for a physical exam, at least we should, but there's something wrong with us. There's something weak about us. We're not doing it right if we have to lower ourselves to see somebody to shrink our head. That stigma, still in 2020. Rather than saying, good for you, I got my car checked up, I got my, my mind checked up, I learned some coping, I did do, do, do some prevention. It doesn't always have to be that you're in a total crisis and then you go see a shrink and you get better and never see that person again. So I lived stigma uh, when I was a boy growing up in Columbus, Ohio. Dad was a professor at Ohio State of philosophy. Mom was a lecturer in English at Ohio State. My little sister and I had, anyways, this perfect upbringing. We had 50-yard line seats at Ohio Stadium to watch the Buckeyes because Dad had been a professor since he was 25. Except that, 
for three months or six months or when I was in third grade, a year at a time, he was gone. Right. Had aliens abducted him in the middle of the night? No explanation before, no explanation during, no explanation after. What I didn't know until I was 18 and dad started to divulge to me was that his lead doctor over around Ohio State said, if your children ever learn of your lifelong mental illness, they thought it was schizophrenia, it turned out to be bipolar disorder, it was often commonly mistaken. If they learn of this and the hospitals where you've been, they'll be permanently destroyed. You and your wife are forbidden from ever mentioning the topic to your children. So the doctor's orders of the days were mental illness is so shameful and disgraceful that if children even know the term, they'll be permanently destroyed mentally. So in a little passage in the book and in talks I give, I say, well, what if an oncologist today saw a parent and said, if your children ever learn of your cancer, they'll be permanently destroyed. Well, we sue the doctor for malpractice. How does one find, what are some of the steps pragmatically that people can take to move forward, both because of stigma and lack of familiarity or lack of available resources that you can just walk to? We learned, my sister and I, as, a, as kids, that life was great or it was horrible. We didn't know if dad was alive or dead. And again, it took years for dad to overcome the doctor's orders and tell me once I'd gone away to college about his life of these horrific episodes of mania and depression that we thought were schizophrenia for some time. When you're any age and something's going wrong, but nobody talks about it, I think you have two choices. The world's a terrible, random, cruel place, not a very healthy attribution, or it must be me. I've done something wrong. That internalization fuels depression. So now to your current question, look inside yourself. It really may be different from the way you've been feeling for a while. And it's hard to know whether it's COVID-19 related or it set off another trigger you probably are gonna only go so far with self-examination. There's peer counseling at a lot of universities. There's sliding scale therapy in a lot of towns at university clinics, etc. There's psychotherapists at master's level, LCSW, social worker level, uh, doctoral level psychologist, PhD and PsyD level. There's Everything's online these days. You can find people close to you. You can get consumer ratings. You can talk to people who've seen a given therapist. You take that first step. You're worried. What does it mean? Am I being weak? Is my head going to get shrunk? It's really different from all that if you find someone that you form what we call a working alliance with. I think they get me. I think I was heard. I think we can set some goals. I've got a lot of stuff going on that I don't know quite to do with. The act of getting going is a big part of it. When people are very severely depressed, one of the things, as I mentioned at the outset, is it's literally hard to get out of bed. It's hard to get moving. Or if you feel like you're going through your motions, the motions during a day, and that's it. Simply by taking the step of getting support, simply by talking about it, simply by, in a severe depression, making yourself, this is called behavioral activation. It's a part of cognitive behavioral therapy. Do things that you feel like you can't do. 
a few days later, the feeling comes back. But you've got to make yourself go out and get it done. That action is a big part of the healing. So talk to your loved ones. Find the right place to go to. You might not find the best fit with a person uh, right away. You might feel an instant connection. There's different ways that therapy works, but they're all based on hope, action, motivation, and getting your needs expressed and finding ways to cope with what everybody's having a hard time coping with these days. Okay, great. Thank you. And I'm going to do a follow-up. I'm being asked to remind our listeners that you can stop the YouTube viewer when the slide comes up and you can write down the information. Again, you can re-access this with YouTube soon and I will read some of these. So I, it would, I would imagine that even the many who feel isolated um, can, need to take a risk in reaching out to someone at some point, somebody they don't know and can't really physically meet with. Okay. I'd like to address one thing very quickly um, that I completely agree with. um, And yet, with all due respect, this is a privileged view we're talking about to our listeners. The very real problems for many are getting food, paying rent, uh, keeping your job, having your business collapse or your job collapse. So I just want to offer something about that. And that is indeed absolutely correct. Those are the things in life that are essential to waking up tomorrow. And yet those also represent stressors, which lead to alterations in mood. One of the very real problems, and this is not to be politicized, is the enormous inequity in terms of access to resources. Uh, paying for it as well as availability to them. And yet, even somebody that is struggling to put food on their table has the ability through no cost, even if they don't have an internet, to call, let's say, a crisis line, to contact a faith-based organization that is offering free support and so on. Do you want to comment a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. And it's it's a completely valid comment that was just made. We're dealing with an economic downturn that we haven't seen in many, many decades. And the ultimate consequences, we don't know how to compare with the Great Depression of the 30s. We do know that the 30s and the Great Depression, as a good example, unemployment was astronomical and suicide rates steadily climbed. Rates of depression climbed. Economic downturn leads to demoralization. And it's physical, it's nutrition, it's sustenance. Uh, it's life work, but there are huge consequences for mood. So to say that we have to figure out resources to get people fed and work is absolutely true. But some of the consequences of economic downturns, and this is, again, a downturn like maybe no other that we, we've known in recent history, is going to lead to psychological consequences. What we want to avoid is that vicious cycle, right? right? It's it's not either or, it's both and. And it's the, the, the ante is raised if you're disenfranchised and your job is threatened or you've lost it and uh, support payments are vanishing. But that's all the more reason to figure out how you're going to both economically and psychologically take care of yourself to avoid worse consequences. Thank you. Very well put. 
you know, it seems to me like more and more we're living within a binary culture right now where you either have a mask on or a mask off. You get tested or you don't get tested. So this leads to what are your thoughts about antidepressant medications as a tool, a tool for improving? Do the advantages outweigh the side effects or do we just tough it out? So there's that sort of binary belief. So right. thank you to the person. Right. Medications are panaceas or they're poisons. And in the work I do with ADHD, ADHD meds are often characterized in the same way or poisoning kids' minds or, uh, or helping them become better learners. And there's... Uh, just asked if you could turn up your microphone just a little bit more, please. A little bit more. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let me find where my mic setting would be. I'll get a little closer also. Uh, is this helping? Okay. We have about 20 minutes and I want to use it as best we can. Right. So medications lead to polarized attitudes. Why would you need a pill to make you feel better? We should all, it's sort of the American way, uh, do effort, uh, try hard, and we don't need a pill to, to help us do that. So let's take a, an example from medicine. What if you go into your doctor and your blood pressure is 140 over 90. So you're, depending on the classification, borderline or maybe mild hypertension. Probably a lot of doctors are going to say, let's start with diet and exercise and lifestyle change. Right. If you walk in that same day, but you're a different person and your blood pressure is 280 over 200, your doctor is probably going to want you get, to get you started on medication before you do serious organ damage. Depression is pretty similar. If you're under, undergoing a mild depression, you haven't had one before, or you've had them before, and you realize you're in early phases, therapy can really work. Works better than placebo. It works better than non-treatment alternatives. Medications, as the depression gets more severe, can help boost your serotonin and norepinephrine levels. They take Often many weeks to work, you need to get the right dose or the right pill. Precision medicine someday will help us know when you go in, we read your genogram and say, uh, Brad, you need uh, Prozac at starting at 20 milligrams a day, but Steve, no, you need Lexapro at 10. We're not there yet. So it's a lot of trial and error. We don't really stigmatize taking insulin for diabetes. I don't really say to you, Brad, if you just tried harder, you could take those glasses off and could see. Come on, where's your effort? There you go. But we all tend to say, or too many of us tend to say, if you just tried harder, you could snap out of that depression. If you've got a family history and a genetic vulnerability, if there was trauma in your background and you're vulnerable to life events more than other people, what do we really know from many, many studies? It's the combination of good psychotherapy and medication that leads to the biggest outcomes, and it leads to staying well later. What we still don't have, because depression tends to be something that recurs in about a half of people who've had a first depression, what can we do to prevent depressions for the rest of your life? And that's going to take we talked about diet, 
uh, and exercise. And we haven't talked about meditation, but we might. Another evidence-based treatment, mindfulness meditation, that can really help people overcome depressions and maybe prevent later episodes. We don't have good data on that. Don't be afraid to try it. Think of it as a, a, your treatment for cancer. We don't really stigmatize people today for getting chemo or radiation because they didn't try hard enough to get their cancer cured naturalistically, right? So your answer to this individual would be that it is worth discussing with her physician. Absolutely. therapist or other people who she trusts. Right. I mean, let's face it. Big pharma has come under big criticism and sometimes justifiably so. You know, on the positive side, the federal government doesn't have nearly the funds to do the chemical studies and animal studies and phase one, two, and three studies to develop a medicine that takes year after year after year. Pharma has to put, put out money to do that. But pharma for many medications has overzealously advertised and made false claims and fueling the critics who say it's just poisoning people's minds. When it's your body and your mind and your decision Get a practitioner you trust, weigh the options, and sometimes a trial can be very instructive as to whether it was necessary or not. Wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, to move to something a little bit more forward, um, and um, I appreciate if we receive comments about uh, opinions about big pharma, pharmaceuticals, FDA, CDC, and so on, but uh, today will not be the uh, forum in which any of those will be discussed, but we do appreciate your thoughts and comments as always. You know, it has been said that there are more positive affirmational approaches to addressing feeling blue all the way to depression, depression, such as meditation. And I wonder if you can comment, uh, you've commented on exercise and nutrition, for example. Uh, what is the power of something like meditation? So first of all, meditation is many different things. We have to be just the way psychotherapy could be cognitive behavioral therapy or interpersonal therapy or family therapy. Meditation could be transcendental meditation or the varieties of mindfulness meditation, et cetera, et cetera. I went back in preparation for today's Commonwealth Club and found an article from 2018, just a year and a half ago, uh, that I hadn't read since it came out. And this is what we call a meta-analysis. It's a review of all the studies that have ever been done, of good quality and bad quality and every quality in between, systematically appraising the evidence, in this case, of meditation. And for depression, mindfulness meditation had the most studies, looking at how it contrasted with no treatment, how it contrasted with a kind of placebo meditation, how it contrasted with cognitive behavior therapy, and with medication? The answer was very clear. Rich, Richard Davidson of Wisconsin is one of the primary authors. There's many authors of this clinical psychology review paper in 2018. And the evidence is pretty clear. There are fewer studies of mindfulness meditation than there are of cognitive behavior therapy or medication for major depression. But those studies that have been done show that Meditation, if done well and regularly, is just about on a par with psychotherapy and medication for major depression. So it's a very encouraging finding. But again, meditation's many different things. And, um, you know, let the buyer beware. 
it's worth some study as to which kind of meditation approach might work for you best. So that raises an interesting question in my mind when we look at all the different ways that people can try and do things for themselves given these moods. Um, And that is how important is it for the person to feel like this fits with me or this feels really alien to me or awkward or uncomfortable to me? So there's a fancy psychological term that I learned in grad school. Are the feelings you have egosyntonic or egodystonic? Sounds like a kind of mumbo jumbo. If you're a kind of chronically pessimistic person, maybe you climb into or sink into, would be a better metaphor, a depression, and it just feels like you usually feel only worse. Might be harder to notice. But if you're more an upbeat, somewhat optimistic person, and then as the result of COVID or a breakup or job loss or any one of a number of life events, and especially if you have a genetic vulnerability, especially if you've had early trauma, you feel really different from the way you usually feel. And it's it's agonizing. It's terrifying. One of the symptoms of major depression that we haven't talked about yet is there's a diurnal quality. Mornings are typically periods of agony. Not only can you not get out of bed, but you just feel despairing and like nothing will ever improve. And somehow gradually by afternoon and evening, your mood lifts. If you're again, a relatively optimistic person and you sink into a major depression, you would do anything to get out of those mornings. This is why depression too often leads to the feeling I can't handle this pain anymore and suicidal thoughts and intentions come into play. So if you're again a sort of a gloomy by character person, maybe harder to notice that you've gone into a major depression, but for many, if not most people, a major depression is so egodystonic. It's so unlike what you felt before. People say it's like having you know, the worst flu you can have of your mind and brain. You can't seem to climb your way out of it. That's when you really need help. Somebody who feels like they tend to be sort of by themselves or self-isolated in general, more of an introvert, and that trying different measures to uh, address their mood requires a very significant risk at a time when they may not feel supported or buffered to take yeah. that risk. Any thoughts? Any, any well, cheerful cheerleading comments? Well, cheerleading might help football teams this fall if they play or when they play. Cheerleading's not usually a terribly effective strategy when people are feeling down because the person says, they don't feel the way I do. They can cheerlead all they want. I can't get myself out of this dark hole of my soul. Yes. I can't get out of what Andrew Solomon in his award-winning book from 20 years ago called the noonday demon. And he was referring to this diurnal, this horrible midday feeling of, of despair. What's so hard to do, and I can think of the depressions I've had, when you're feeling despondent, you can't quite remember what it feels like to feel undespondent. 
We call this state-dependent learning, another kind of fancy psychological term. If you're in a certain mood state, it's hard to imagine you're going to feel any different. But that's where therapy helps. That's where meditation can help. That's where just having been experienced in having these symptoms before, you often know that by the end of the day, that mood will lift. You know that a week or a month later, situations may change and you're not going to always feel this way, which is why staying active is so important. One of the symptoms of major depression, too, we haven't discussed, is rumination. The negative events recycling in your mind over and over to drive yourself further into a depression. And sometimes it takes medication to help break that cycle. And more often, it takes good psychotherapy to challenge the ways you're thinking and accept other facets of yourself. ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, is kind of a newer version of cognitive behavior therapy. There is hope. You may not feel it, but with time, there is hope if you stick with it. Thank you for that. So to broaden that a little bit further for the audience, um, would it be fair to say that there is no one singular best treatment for someone, but that it requires a sort of menu, if you yep. will? Yep. So in the way that we will know someday, 20 or 50 or 100 years from now, that what we call depression is really three or five or 12 different kinds of chemical processes in our body, some of which are genetic, some of which are environmentally triggered, some of which are combinations. We know averages. We know that good psychotherapy helps the majority of people with major depression. We know that medication does too. We now know that meditation, speaking as clearly as I can, is getting to be on par with those. Diet and exercise are incredibly important supplements as well. But what we don't know yet is is whether Brad Berman, who goes in to see his doctor for major depression, should start with list A of medication or list B of what kind of therapy or list C of meditation, because we don't have that precision medicine profile yet to predict for you what's the best sequence. Fair enough. Thank you for that. I want to ask one more question, recognizing that we thank so many of our listeners for their uh, comments on the side, and unfortunately, we will not be able to address all of them, including the disparities of socioeconomic opportunities for resources. Yep. Are joy and happiness the opposites of depression? And if so, can we train our brains in two minutes, Can we, which is unfair, can we train our brains to seek and focus on what brings us these states of joy and happiness, almost as an antidote? Yeah, joy and happiness and awe. My colleague, Dr. Keltner, psychologist at, at UC Berkeley, really into the experience of awe and how it can lift people out of uh, negative mood states. Let me comment first. I'm not sure that joy and happiness are the polar opposites of depression. In some ways, the polar opposites of joy and happiness are lack of feeling at all. Right. Sometimes depression, again, small d depression, provides an antidote to kind of unbridled joy and happiness, to a manic episode. We haven't talked about bipolar disorder, 
much more genetically liable than depression, where pre people fluctuate from manias to depressions. In everyday, yeah, go ahead. So, so I, and I'm sorry, it's, I'm just trying to help bring this to, to a point, which is what is the value then of seeking out joy and happiness and immersing ourselves more than on a, like daily doses? Right. So I believe that if you read from years ago, Norman Cousins, the founder of the Saturday Review and editor for many years, who had a terrible autoimmune disease and made himself watch Marx Brothers and Charlie Chaplin films and thought that experiencing joy would help recover his immune system. And in a single case study, it did for him. We There's need to- There's a book called Anatomy of an Illness. Anatomy of an Illness. And, incredible book. So finding everyday sources of joy is an incredibly important thing to do. It's not going to by itself lift you out of a major depression. At least when you're depressed, you're sensitive and you're feeling. That's not a bad thing unless the despair takes over. So number one, find those sources of joy, which is harder to do in this world we live in today than we did a few months ago, and we'll be out of it someday. And number two, journaling is a great thing to do as well. Sometimes we have more insights when we're in a mild depression, then we're kind of coasting along in a joyful state. And that sensitivity and insight may provide value, value to us later on. Well, thank you for that. I think that's fabulous. Um, we're going to need to draw this to a close. We could spend an entire day and maybe we should at some point on this. Um, I would like to express my joy and gratitude to you, Stephen, for be Steve, for sharing with us today a little bit of your experience uh, your research knowledge, and of course, your own personal life feelings related to this. If you could, in just three simple bullet points, three takeaways from today. One. Number one, it's not a sign of weakness to admit that you're anxious or depressed. It's a sign of strength. Number two. Evidence-based treatments work. They don't work for everybody all the time, but if you work with a good therapist, you'll find the ones that work for you. We can and will overcome the stigma. If people speak up enough, I'm going to go for another second. Back in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, you'd never put cancer in the obituary of your older relative who died because cancer was a disease that you brought upon yourself because you had lost your will to live. Cancer was stigmatized. Today, it's a cause. Maybe mental health issues will be a cause in the future, and Everyday humanization, people have mental disorders. They're not afflicted in their souls by them. If we talk about it, we can change policies and change our human hearts. Humanization and reducing stigma is number three. Thank you, Steve. Mark, can we put up the slide again now? So we are going to repeat. That was fabulous, Steve. Just thank you for that. Before we close, we're going to present the slide again. It will be there. You can look at it later. The Contra Costa Crisis Center is at 1-800-833-2900. You do not have to live in Contra Costa to attend to this. Bay Area Suicide Prevention, uh, please contact 211. There are trained people to listen as well as to re, uh, refer to resources irrespective of your um, financial abilities. And the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, one 800 273 
0.55. When people comment um, about suicidal um, behaviors or suicidal attempts and they survive, the number one comment, bar none, is that they only wish they had had somebody to listen to them. And if nothing else, we as a community virtually can pull together to do that. If only I'd made it through that painful moment, I would have looked back and said, I didn't really want to die. I mean, it's a, almost a universal response. Absolutely. Uh, thank you very much. We are so grateful to our audience, as well as to those listening to the recording. And now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California commemorating its 117th year of enlightened discussion, even in the era of COVID-19, is now adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support. Thank you.